I managed to hide that from Luke for quite a while, and I don't think he was particularly happy with me when he, he ultimately found out after quite a while that uh, I had a little background uh, doing this kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's it's good for him. It's hard. I I've been in this in this line of work before, and it's it's hard when you're like the only one, and there's kind of a wait if you need to be gone, you know, for who can come in and and step in and uh, fill in. Um, so um, it, it, it's a privilege. It's 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 also a little bit disconcerting getting up here every now and then. You're like, oh man, I don't really want to do that, you know. But it, it's good too. It's it's a blessing, and and I'm glad to be able to uh, be here today. I'm gonna have to apologize in advance because. I'm going to start this, this uh, message out with a fishing illustration. It turns out that Luke's not the only fisherman in the crowd. I happen to do a little fishing myself, but I want to talk about uh, an element of fishing that poses a uh, major problem, and that is snags. Has anyone ever been fishing and gotten snagged up? It is not exactly fun. Uh, what are snags? A number of things can represent snags. A uh, tree a branch, something under the water. Uh, a tree above the water um, or a branch above the water can uh, pose a, a significant problem, especially if you like the fly fish. I tend to like the uh, fly fish, and I know that trees often represent a major problem. You know it, uh, it's trouble when you're casting your rod and all of a sudden you just stop midair because your fly is supposed to go forward into the water, and then you look back and it inevitably is hung up on a tree. Uh, I remember when I used to fish uh, with a certain someone in my life. I won't mention her name, but she was particularly good at this element of fishing. Snags uh, can be things you see. They can be things that you don't often see. Um, sometimes your partner's fishing line. Uh, if you're fishing out of a boat, uh, there's so many things that can represent a snag. You can get snagged up on an oar. You can get snagged up on the net. You can get snagged up on your buddy's clothes or maybe even his ear or his face. That doesn't generally go uh, off too well when you get snagged up on your buddy. Uh, the, the anchor rope. This is a particularly good little snag. I remember I was fishing with Luke a little while back, and uh, he had, he'd hooked his fish, and I was out kind of by the fish, so I yanked my pole or my line out of the water to you know keep from getting tangled up and snagged up with him, and I get it hung up on the anchor rope. And... Man, you thought I'd never hear the end of it from him, like, back there, I'm like, trying to get my fly out of the rope forever. Um, snags, uh, they pretty much achieve one purpose, uh, and that is to get you frustrated and mad, right? <laughs> They're not fun. But the main thing they do, ultimately, is they keep you from catching fish. If you're snagged up, you're not going to catch a fish. And, and, and snags can be really deceptive sometimes because, like, you'll be fishing along and all of a sudden your pole, like, bend over and you think you got, like, this great fish on and you're just there fighting it. And then what is it? It ends up being a snag. And you're like, oh. And then you get to break it off. You tie all up again. It just, it, what does it do? It keeps you from catching fish. It keeps you from fishing because you're dealing with the snag. The fish, though, they seem to love these snags. Right? You get a fish on, and what, are the fir what is the first thing that they do? Man, boom, they dive underneath, try to wrap you around a branch or do something crazy, right? Because they don't want to be caught. The fish turned the table on me the other day when I was fishing. I had caught this fish, and I unhooked the fly from it, and I, I let it go, and all of a sudden, wham, this hook is just deep into my hand. And I'm like, what in the world just happened? My, like, my flies are off in the water, 
And uh, it turns out that this, this fish had, had another fly attached to it. So when I let it go, I didn't notice it. And it just, it, you know, when you let fish go after they're caught, they usually just dart off pretty good. Well, this thing darted off and boom, it just buried the hook in my hand. So I had to like re-catch this fish, get the hook out of my hand. And he's like, yeah, you're going to get a little dose of my medicine to turn the tables on me. So if you want to catch fish, ultimately, you have to keep from getting snagged. You have to find ways not to get snagged, right? If you're fishing with Luke and you're, he wants you in a certain spot and you, like, get wrapped up around the oar, Zach, right? Usually, he's not too happy about it. Why? Because you're not going to catch a fish if you're wrapped up around the oar, if you're snagged up. So we are in a, a sermon series this month called This Is us and really kind of what we're doing with this series is we're talking about the importance of community and what community looks like and why it's important why community matters for our lives and why it should matter the scripture that i want to uh use this morning to um to tie uh tie us into this series and and to be the third part is it, it comes from the book of james and and I think one of the things we see when we look at this passage and, we, and when we read it is that we, we kind of see some of the snags that keep us from being the kind of community or being the kind of people that God wants us to be. So it's, it's in uh, James chapter 3, and we're going to be reading uh, verses 13 through 18 this morning. Listen to these words. Uh, true wisdom comes from God. If you are wise and understand God's ways, Prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every kind, uh, and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, this text this morning that talks about uh, different kinds of wisdom. And as we focus uh, again on community, Lord, on uh, this series, This Is Us, um, I pray that it would just speak to our hearts. It would be used by your spirit just to uh, transform us into the kind of community, the kind of people. So when we look at this passage, we kind of see a couple of different kinds of wisdom. And one of, one of the wisdom, uh, types of wisdom that James talks about here is wisdom uh, of the world and what worldly wisdom looks like. And then also kind of what heavenly wisdom looks like. But it's really not a surprise if, if you look around what kind of wisdom tends to dominate our culture today, right? Is it... Is it worldly wisdom or is it heavenly wisdom? Is it, is it this type of wisdom that is full of selfishness and the powerful set of cravings to, to be all me-centered? 
yeah, the wisdom of our culture, the wisdom of this world is kind of all about me. And, and what does James say this kind of wisdom does? It's like it's, it's the wisdom that harbors bitter envy, selfish ambitions, jealousy, and it's ultimately extremely, extremely destructive, right? And, and just let's, let's take a look at our culture for a minute. I mean, we, we kind of have this overwhelming obsession to like do what feels good and what feels right and what I, you know, what, what's good for me. And does it, does it lead to anything good ever? Think about the number of um, relationships that are just destroyed because of this, this huge preoccupation with me and what I want and what I need and my rights. And it, it's generally, uh, doesn't turn out too good. You think about the number of like marriages, like I mean, like if you if you look at a marriage and you look at one that's going right, it's generally it's generally the ones that are like you're focused on the other person, what they need, what their wants are. If it's the other way around, if it's totally self-centered, self-preoccupied, like if if, if someone's on their own program that's generally not going to go very well. And you think about the destruction, the disorder that comes from this kind of me-centeredness, this, this self-preoccupation with this worldly type of wisdom that James talked about in this, in this passage. It's not good. And, and it's where we're at as a culture today. The wisdom of this world, the wisdom of where we're at is really a wisdom about me. It's all about my rights, my privileges, my freedoms, it's about me. And what does James say that this does to us? It's pretty pretty revealing. I mean, he doesn't really mince words. He calls it kind of a demonic type of wisdom, right? Because this is not what God calls us to. He doesn't call us to this self-centered life. One of the common definitions of sin that that church leaders have talked about throughout history is the self. And basically what sin is, is it's the self curved in and upon itself, right? It's, it's, it's the world revolving around me. Because if the world's revolving around me, then what it cannot be revolving around is what God wants, right? Our world isn't oriented towards God anymore. And I think it's just, it's a good way to look at worldly wisdom. It's like this wisdom that is just totally self-preoccupied, preoccupied on me, preoccupied on self. And it's not just in our culture. It's just not in, in the youth of today where it's all about what feels good or in, in, in a lot of marriages that end up broken and, and families that end up messed up. It really, it can creep into the church as well. I, I've been a part of uh, the church for a minute now. I've seen a few things, done a few things. And one of the things I often see is like when, when people leave a church or they divorce themselves from a church, it's like, yeah, that church doesn't, wasn't meeting my needs and it just didn't feel right and it didn't feel good. And, and, I, and I look at that and I'm like, yeah, that's pretty common. It's pretty familiar. It's worldly wisdom creeping in again. Because ultimately when, when we come and, and we're part of a church community and when we look at the importance of church community, it really becomes a lot more about what just is good for me, right? It has to be about what is good for the collective, what is good 
for the people at large. And if we're always so preoccupied with like, yeah, this isn't this is right for me, I mean, the most petty things can divorce us and cause us to leave a community of faith. And, and, and you know, do we often say like, oh, I don't really feel like coming to church today and it just doesn't feel right. Do we think about, well, how is this going to impact the community if I'm not there? If I'm not there presenting my gift and my talents and my time and my energy, it's not just an impact on you, but it can be a larger impact on the community. And I think this is what James begins uh, talking about in this passage when he trans, when he tra- uh, contrasts the worldly wisdom to the heavenly wisdom is he stops is he starts saying, hey, you need to refuse to allow the world to revolve around you and your agendas. You need to refuse to make your concerns the ultimate concerns in life. Why? Because true wisdom, the kind of wisdom that you need to live your life by, this wisdom comes from heaven. It is characterized by purity. It is characterized by peacefulness. It's characterized by consideration, by submissiveness, by mercy, by impartiality, by sincerity. And what does this true wisdom do? This true wisdom yields a harvest of righteousness. The divine wisdom that God gives to us is a wisdom that looks to who? Me first? No, it's the wisdom that looks to the interest of of the other first. It's a wisdom that causes us to place the needs of others above ourselves. To be truly wise, to accept divine wisdom requires that we look beyond ourselves, right? If we want to live a life that's worthy of the calling that God calls us to, we have to move beyond the self that is curved in and upon itself, right? Because a self that is curved in and upon itself is a self that is not going to be open to God. If we're curved in and upon ourselves, what are we? Are we arms closed to God? Are we arms open to God? That curve has to extend out and up because as we open ourselves up to something beyond ourselves, to worldly wisdom, the kind of wisdom that dominates our lives, our culture, our churches, our institutions, our workplaces. I mean, think about that. Think about the workplace, for example. Who, who, wants, to, who wants to work with that person who is uh, all about them, right? Uh, yeah, that, that's what we want. That's, that's easy. Who are the most problematic people in the workplace? They're the people who are on their own program, right? It's, it, they're, they're never about the team, right? What do, what do coaches always say? There's no high in team, right? Because it's hard when somebody's just on their own program and they're not, they're not working towards the goal of the team, the collective. I mean, it's easy to work with those people that are about the team and about others and who are caring and compassionate, that listen well. It's hard to work with people who are just the opposite. In, 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 in my line of work, it's like, you're on your own program. That's what we always tell people. You're on your own program again because it, it's it's rough. It's tough to work with those kinds of people. It's tough to live with those kinds of people. It's tough to worship in a community. And when, when you hear the stories of like, hey, where'd that person go? It's like, why they leave the church? And you're like, what? Are you kidding me? That 
that concern, that issue drove you away from the community of God's people? What, what is the church? Is it, a, is it about this place we come for our needs to be met? Yeah, I mean, that is a part of it. But the church is most fundamentally a community of people, a called out people who are supposed to represent God's love, his care, his compassion. For who? Those who are not yet part of us, right? For the world. That's what it means. It means to come, to grow, to be discipled, to begin to be open to this curvature that is not just self-revolving, but other-revolving. Because as we become centered around others, we begin living the kind of life that God wants. It becomes this heavenly type of wisdom. I mean, just look at this this contrast. The one the the one wisdom is selfish. It's concerned about me, my desires, my privileges, my freedoms. And what does James say? This kind of wisdom is destructive, devilish, demonic. Is that what we want? Is that what we need for our society, for our church, for our community? It has to be about this is us, not just about this is me, right? It can't just be this self-curved life. A life that truly is the life worth living is a life that is oriented towards God and the other. It's, it's a arrows pointing outward, upward, otherward, not inward. And, and it's a tough transition. It's a tough thing, right? Because, I mean, right from when we get out of this womb, <laughs> we're, it, it's about what we need, right? And what we want and what we desire, if you look at uh, parenting, and the worst thing that you can do for your kids is just to give them what they want all the time. You see these parents who just want to just stick that pacifier in the kid's mouth and shut them up. And that just transitions over and over and over and over again, right? What, what does parenting do that always gives the child what they want? Parents who are their kids' best friends, but not what their kids really need, you know, to grow and to parent them, right? Is that doing anything for that kid's life? No, it, it messes them up most of the time. There has to be rules. There has to be guidelines that says, hey, this just isn't about you. This is about our family and what's best for our family and what's going to be best for you. Ultimately, it's not always this little self-preoccupation with what you want right now, right? And it's tough. I mean, it requires discipline. It requires commitment. It requires work. To be the kind of community that God wants and calls us to be is, is not easy. It's the furthest thing from easy. It's easier to be self-preoccupied. It's easier to be self-centered. It's easier to just focus on what feels good and what feels right. That's why so many people do it in our society today, right? That's why we tend to be plagued with that kind of life. We see where it leads over and over and over again. It leads to chaos. It leads to messed up lives. It leads to destruction. It leads to all kinds of abuses. Destroyed marriages. Destroyed friendships. Destroyed families. Destroyed churches. Over and over and over again we see it. And it's a worldly wisdom that's dominating. And I think James knows it. I think God knows it. And I think it's something that we need to hey, what is it in our lives? You know, what is it in our families that is, is causing chaos? What is it that's causing us to go awry? What is it 
that's causing, you know, quarrel and, and envy and, and bitterness. It's generally not going to be that which is focused on the other. Like if we really care about the needs of other people around us, those are not going to cause those types of things. What's going to cause those types of things is when we're self-preoccupied with me and what, what feels right for me and what feels good for me. If you want to start living a, a fulfilled life, the kind of life that yields what God wants from us, it's going to require that we allow you know, God's grace to transform us at the core of our being. Because at the core of our being, we are self-curved in and upon ourselves. We are a self-centered person who is in desperate need of God's transformation and grace. And it's going to mean just changing a few of our behaviors and habits and customs. It's going to require a transformation at the core of who we are. It means humbly admitting to the ways that we have allowed worldly wisdom to come in and destroy and to lead us awry and become truly open to, to God. It's a story of exchanging, you know, the story of me almighty to the story of God being almighty. It's the story of God, the story that is for the benefit of others. We're going to uh, end our time this morning by uh, moving into a time of communion. If you didn't receive uh, the elements this morning as you came in, you can go, go ahead and feel free to come up and, and grab an, an element and <coughs> One of the things that, that you might have often um, heard when it comes to communion and, and taking communion is that, that you should not do it in an unworthy manner. Has anyone ever heard that? Like, you cannot come to the Lord's table and do it in an unworthy manner. But one of the things that's, that's interesting that we often miss is the context that, that Paul, when he's talking about that, comes from. In, in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11, Paul, Paul says, whoever eats the, the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So it, what, what this is often done is like, man, I don't want to come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner because then I'm sinning against God. You know, God's going to you know, crack me over the head even more, you know, cast me into the other depths of, of hell. And, but it's really not about our worthiness because we're all unworthy to come to the table. The context of, of this whole discussion of worthiness was about dissension in that church community. Earlier in, in the, the, that chapter, Paul talks about the, the church coming together with divisiveness. And that there's differences that are keeping people from being a Christ-centered community. A kind of a community that God wants them to be. There, there's quarreling, there's... There's people not looking out for each other. There's people getting humiliated. There's, there's, there's really a lot of self-preoccupation in that community. And so what Paul basically is saying is when you eat the bread or drink the cup in an, in an unworthy manner, you're doing it in a way that is, is not reflective of your brother and your sister. He, he goes on to say when you, when you come together to eat, wait for each other, you know, be thinking about the other person, be thinking about the community, be thinking about us collectively as a community, that's, that's what he's talking about, don't come 
to the table with the vision and the community. Don't come to the table with just the self-preoccupation with you. Communion, it, it represents the story of God for others. The story of this God, he would take it upon himself to be subject to suffering and shame and the persecution, brokenness. It's the, the blood and body of our broken Lord that is for us together. So we'll, I think ultimately that, that when we come this morning and when we come and we receive communion in a worthy manner, we're doing it together as God's people. It's not just about us. It's coming to the table together to not merely focus on what we need, but on what God wants from us. And it, and it requires a little bit of self-reflection, I think. It, it requires us coming to the table today with the other in mind. You know, what relationship is just thoroughly messed up in your life because of a preoccupation about you? How is our church community not fully being the vibrant community that God wants us to be in, in our local community and in the world around us because of just petty concerns and issues of self-preoccupation. I think this is what God is challenging us to this morning is to, to say, hey, what, how is worldly wisdom dominating? You know, what, how, do we, how do we need to allow heavenly wisdom to take over? This kind of wisdom that is full of purity, peacefulness, consideration, submissiveness, mercy, impartiality, sincerity. This kind of wisdom that's going to yield an everlasting harvest of righteousness as opposed to the kind of worldly wisdom that's going to lead to pain, chaos, confusion, destruction. Let's come to the table this morning and accept true grace, true transformation. Not about our worthiness, but about God's desire to change who we are at the core of our beings. The story of God is, is about the story of transformation. It's the story of grace. It's the story of what God wants to do in our hearts. Not merely for our own benefit, but for the benefit of His mission in this world, right? For God so loved me, that famous verse, right? that he should come and die and perish. No, what is it? For God so loved the world. This is his plan. This is his mission. It's for us not to be self-preoccupied, but to be God-preoccupied, to be other-preoccupied. And everything begins to come into line. Let's, let's take the bread this morning and hold it. Lord, none of us are worthy to come to the table this morning. And Lord, as, as we come, we pray and we reflect and we examine our lives, our relationships, and, and, and what in our lives God is causing us to bend and kowtow to this worldly wisdom. Lord, let us not come in an unworthy manner that is just self-preoccupied, but let us come thinking about what we need to be for each other for our families, for our relationships, for our world. This is the kind of church that God calls us to. Amen? Amen. God, we thank you for your body that was broken for us, that shows us and teaches us what it means to live in the kind of relationship 
to embrace heavenly wisdom, a wisdom that's going to lead to everlasting righteousness. Amen? Let's take that bread together this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for your broken body. It's one body that we, that we, uh, that we take together. And it's one blood that represents what Christ did for all of us forever, for the world. Let's drink together this one. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your, your word. Thank you for your gospel. We thank you for communion that challenges us to receive grace and enable us to transform us, to call us to higher heights, to another way of living. Lord, you're an awesome God, and and we know that it requires grace to embrace this kind of lifestyle. It's so easy just to fall into this worldly type of wisdom that wants to dominate God, and we just want to open ourselves to this, this kind of communal living, this kind of focus on the other, focus on the mission of love and sincerity for the benefit of others that you call us to. Lord, we know it's not an easy lifestyle, but with your grace, with your love, we can embrace it. We can live it. Amen? Amen. So as we leave today, we do have a few things that I want to remind you of. One is pick up your kids. Don't leave them, right? Because that's not good for the workers back there. Think of the workers. Uh, we do have some invite cards. Grab an invite card. Invite somebody to church. And uh, think about how the others can be impacted by God's love. And we will see you next Sunday. And we are thankful that our picnic is not today in the rain. I think the weather forecast looks better next Sunday for that family reunion. Go in God's grace and peace this morning.